Hello and welcome to episode 320 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 23rd of April, 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Marsh Davies. That's me. We've made some, uh, well, we've been aided in making some uh, further improvements to our remote podcasting setup uh, this week. Uh, twofold improvement. One is that we've identified the source of the dreaded kind of echo effect. And it is Marsh. We oh, haven't geez. fixed it. <laughs> we haven't fixed it, but we do know where it comes from. Uh, it's because I live a in comfort... a giant echoing void. That's the problem. <laughs> the emptiness of my life just reflects you back at yourselves. And what can't solve the emptiness in your life is uh, NVIDIA's new RTX voice AI-driven <laughs> noise cancellation. Uh, it can cancel noise, but it, it can't fill the void. But what it can do is actively kill seagulls, which is uh, allowing me... Uh, to open my skylight and if you hear a single seagull that's because my graphics card ai has, has failed to uh, erase its presence um, from this recording it's quite impressive actually this um this new technology which allows yeah. you to drum on your desk and, and not be heard well to to overcome the uh the metropolitan police's uh social isolation enforcement goal squad I mean, that's uh, <laughs> powered by 5G, no less. I mean, it's, that's, it's impressive. <laughs> this, the G impressive stands feat. for goal. <laughs> <laughs> I saw yeah. a video of someone using this uh, RTX noise cancelling tech, and it looked like absolute magic to the extent that I thought the video was fake. Um, mm. And he was just blowing a big fan into the microphone and then had a hammer uh, with his right hand and a board that he was just hammering as he was talking yeah. and uh in real time he turned it on as he was doing this and the other sounds just sort of disappeared i was like wow well, i'm tapping on my desk right now can you hear it what are you tapping with my fingers hang on i'll do the same can you hear that no no i love the silence like is the, the proof that it works incredible the fact that you can't... It doesn't really great. work that the video component does it great podcast material <laughs> It's, it's magic no. though i'm amazed by it well i mean i typically always record uh the podcast holding my hoover next to me and and uh pounding things with a hammer so this will <laughs> let me um go hog wild um, yeah incredible the, the um the annoying thing is that uh, uh due to it's not quite clear why this happened actually let, let us not libel or, or slander rather nvidia but um they have put this out uh this nvidia is it what's it called voice RTX? It's called RTX Voice. RTX Voice, uh, which implies that it works only with their RTX cards. Mm. Um, mm. But it does not. However, it is tricky to install if you don't have an RTX card because you need to have the installer fail and then you need to go to the temporary folder where it partially installed it and then uh, edit a config file, um, which, is, which isn't actually that arduous. Or it wouldn't be if fucking Windows permissions prevented yeah. me from doing it for like half an hour. I actually have uh, indents in my knuckle where I bit it hard and screamed in <laughs> <laughs> fury. <laughs> um, yeah, so, oh, uh, boy. Yeah. Incredible relationship with Microsoft. Uh, but the weird thing is, uh, what I did to fix it uh, was no different from all the other times that I tried that and it didn't work. So good job, mm. Microsoft, for making a big old pile of shit there. Yeah. <laughs> I like that the the bit you have to remove is is just two bracketed bits of 
you know, script or, or you know, configuration file that just say like restriction or something like that. I can't remember exactly <laughs> yeah. the wording was. It's like it's you just remove the make not work section and it worked. <laughs> and I wish anything else in software worked like that. <laughs> um but yeah, it's it's dead. it's it's very good. And I've realized I have now got a, a very swanky pair of um wireless headphones i'm not actually using the microphone on them currently but if i was and next week maybe i will i could literally with this technology run around while recording the podcast as far as i could tell um and you wouldn't be able to tell i don't know why i would do this but i will literally take it at this point um because i'm very bored (laughs) (laughs) um it's only the gaming news other than the advent of nvidia rtx Sounds like something we should discuss before embarking on this podcast. Yeah, probably is. Well, I'll tell you what. In place of news, I would I would like to just at the top, off the top of this, uh, I read two really excellent articles today that were very interesting, and I thought maybe I could just recommend them. Was one of them by Robert Yang? It was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of them is is titled "Who Made Fy Underscore Ice World a Forensic Investigation um, on Rock Paper Shotgun," which is really an article good. about um, uh, looking into the. Uh, the origins of a uh, classic Counter-Strike map, which actually Robert Young pointed out on, on Twitter, is also arguably one of the origins of like the three-lane format as a thing um, by looking at, you know, utilising his extensive knowledge of uh, that era of level design and, and level creation tools to uh, and uh, archive.org to go back in time to an internet of my teens that was very, very, you know, close to my home and, and dig into who done what. And it made me... Uh, softly nostalgic for the days of kind of, I guess, tacit little internet FPS communities built around clans, but before it was really possible to just sign up easily for a web presence anywhere. So you just had to sort of agree that you were a thing, even if all you had was like a little GeoCities site and occasionally you saw each other on the same Wireplay server or something like that. Um, it just made me sad for the past, but I, I liked it. Did yeah, you read it too much? Yeah, I, well, I mean, the the investigation he goes into to uncover who is responsible for it and debunk some of the claims of other people who said they were uh, the author of FY underscore Ice World is really good in itself. But I think the preceding article, which just analyzes uh, why the map has been popular and whether mm. whether it whether it typifies a sort of low class appreciation of multiplayer, is really interesting um, because. It's, you, you know, there's not a lot to that level. Mm. It's basically some central obstacles. People spawn within like a few meters of each other, basically. And then it's a dice roll who manages to pick up a gun and kill anybody else first. But while that does strip away quite a lot of the subtleties, say, of Counter-Strike, like he's completely right in saying that this is this is not that far away from really how all of call of duty's multiplayer works (laughs) and and to the extent that as he points out there are maps which are literal clones of this which are hugely popular in the call of duty scene um you know and down to i mean they they change the context of it so it's not this weird Mm. iceberg level anymore but it's you know some container crates in the center instead but actually before he even mentioned that i was thinking well this is i mean how different is this from is it what's the name of the nuke town Mm. Nuketown is that what sounds called? right to me. Yeah, Nuketown, yes. something like that. Anyway, uh, yeah. the Call of Duty level, which which has always been one of my least favourite, because it just feels like you you spawn and you spill out into 
just uh, almost meaningless chaos like you you either have somebody immediately in front of you who who you then shoot or somebody's immediately behind you and they shoot you and there's really, and then mm. even even kind of a better example than that is probably the the gulag level from the the, the new call of duty um Warzone. what's it called Warzone. yeah which is i mean and there's only two um players allowed in that level but i mean it is essentially the the same thing it is yeah know. actually it's a good point it's just a shower block instead of an ice cube yeah yeah oh, the other thing i would compare it to is the like the pre-game lobby in warzone where you parachute with a random gun and then just try and kill someone else and it's completely pointless but like i thought i hated it and i thought it was it was pointless because it was just mostly parachuting and then getting shot and then I think I saw an article where people feel very strongly that it's the best thing about that mode because it is it just cuts to the bit you actually want, which is where you've got a gun and you can shoot a man, which is where the vast majority of the, the feel and the feedback of that game comes from. And almost all of its other modes are about articulating different reasons why you can't have that right now. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I think there's something to be said for just letting people shoot the gun, basically. Wise words. <laughs> um, with that in mind, uh, another excellent article, uh, which I'll, I'll 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 sprinkle this throughout the episode. But another good article uh, I read today uh, was your review of a game, Tom. You reviewed a game. Oh, I well, thank you. Yes, I've re- I've reviewed that um, XCOM Chimera Squad that was announced Ooh. what like a week ago, uh, and suddenly released, which is very strange, and is currently ten bucks on Steam, which wow. is nuts because. It's a chunky, perfectly decent XCOM campaign, actually. And I, would, I think. Would like, you like to tell us about this chunky, perfectly decent XCOM campaign? Yeah, certainly will. It's, so it's um, set five years after the events of XCOM 2, and it's set in one city rather than across the whole world. Um, so humans, aliens, and hybrids have kind of formed this uneasy peace, and they're all living together side by side. Um, only there are, of course, resistance forces. Uh, little groups that kind of want to carry on the advent of war and, and wage their own little war on the citizenry and, and sort of pull the city down into anarchy as your job's investigate them one at a time um, and shoot them, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, but you can shoot them non-lethally, uh, which is one of the funnier parts of the game. Uh, so it's, it's, it's basically very standard XCOM format, as in there are uh, there's a, str- a sort of strategic map of the city, and then you dive in and do sort of turn-based tactical battles um, and the two uh, layers feed into each other, so you, resources you gain from the strategy map let you buy stuff that you can then use in the tactical battles, and then uh, if you do well in the tactical battles by rescuing civilians and killing people killing people non-lethally with uh, non-lethal shotgun blasts, then you pull extra intel out of those battles and that, you can use that on the strategy map. So it's, it's really standard XCOM stuff, but on a sort of smaller scale. Hmm. So your squad is only four people instead of six. Um, and all of the characters, of which there are 11, I believe, are pre-made for you. So you don't get to make your own characters. Uh, you don't get to name them Sergeant Balls Balls, um, R.I.P. <laughs> uh, or uh, you don't get to sort of make your friends and bond with your squad as they kind of level up. Uh, they're all kind of, they're all just pre-created heroes and each one operates basically like its own class. And each of those classes reflects an aspect of XCOM 2's um, systems. So you, there'll be like a pistolier kind of assassin, and there'll be like a, a shotgun specialist. Uh, there's a, a psionic specialist who's amazing. Um, and you level them up and basically find cool combos and ways to 
take guys down in the battles. The battles are only like they're really short, um, and they like often they could they can even be one room sometimes uh, the missions, uh, and they you start with a breach phase, so it's a bit like a kind of SWAT four fantasy mm. where you choose entry points and you assign your heroes to different entry points. And each entry point has pros and cons. It's like you might be more vulnerable, uh, but you get automatic overwatch, or you might, uh, you know, get extra aim, but also, you know, be surrounded by enemies. Um, so it's an interesting tactical choice in where you put which agent. Um, mm. So you want to put your tankiest agent in the most dangerous place, the guy with a big shield, and then you want to put your kind of like shotgun artist um, at the you know at the entry point where she's going to get extra movement so she can really close in on the enemy quickly in the first turn um then when you breach there's this kind of it's, it's very much an evolution of the ambush mechanic from xcom 2 um it all goes into slow motion and you take control of the character who breaches first and then you tab through uh, all of the enemies in the room and you can it's your opportunity basically to get a sneak attack on them um, but it's so blurry, like it just—it's like a blurry effect that just focuses directly on an enemy. Um, and then if you press tab, it'll flip over to the next enemy. Uh, so it's impossible to tell what the room looks like, or where you are, or what the hell is happening, really. Um, but it's an opportunity to pick off difficult targets, basically. Uh, and it looks really cool, and it feels badass. Um, which kind of like picture shots in that opening phase um your dudes automatically run into cover and then as traditional XCOM battle starts and then it kind mm. of goes from there um yeah it's it's an interesting attempt to do kind of small scale sort of snappy XCOM, where it's not like a such a grinding campaign and you're not fighting this kind of constantly escalating difficulty um all the enemies mm. are kind of tricky in interesting ways but they're not just like straight up doing more damage to you as the game goes on right they're not just getting tougher as the game goes on uh, everyone pretty much stays at the same level of health and power um it's just about using your abilities to counter uh, your enemy's abilities um, which is a really really cool idea but i think it stumbles in quite a few ways so for the actual breach moment is really cool and interesting but there's almost no kind of strategy to it really beyond the kind of initial choice you make and it kind of limits your tactical control in, in terms of how you actually deploy into the room because mm. it automatically decides where all your soldiers start um and to me that's just like even according to the fantasy that doesn't make sense because often you're, like, you're standing outside of a window and you could look in <laughs> like it's like uh look into the room and see what's there <laughs> right yeah so or you know it's set in, in the future where you have technology that might be able to scan stuff and give you an idea of what the terrain is like. Um, but no, they've they obviously deliberately want to create this kind of chaotic breach moment uh, for the kind of cinematic effect. But I think it suffers as a strategy game as a result uh, because it kind of just takes control away um, and then just sort of leaves you there to deal with whatever you're, you're handed. It's a fun challenge, but it's not like, I don't like, it's not tactically rich for me. Um, mm. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of like we put you in a hole get yourself out uh, over and over again <laughs> um right. so yeah it's it's an interesting one and it, it, it's it's kind of feel bad sort of um criticizing it in some ways because it's so like it's such good value for money like if you're looking for a, like a lengthy tactical game um it's it's definitely worth dipping into it because it has some really cool elements to it um but i think it has like a 
a bunch of flaws. So for example, if you just kind of look at the game as a whole and think about what's this game really about? What's what's the really cool thing about this that you want the player to experience? And I, I think the cool thing is that you have all these unique heroes with their special abilities and they're kind of used once in a, uh, a battle abilities that sort of combine with each other to create these awesome chain effects. Um, but then the rest of the game really gets in the way of that. Like the traditional XCOM trappings really kind of hold that back from you. So uh, you don't really unlock the really kind of the true potential of your soldiers until they're like level two or three. Mm. Um, and then in between each battle, there's a whole, there's a strategy map phase, which is basically a load of kind of ammo management. It's a load of kind of resource management. Uh, you're just sort of shifting things around to just try to pick up as much Intel and Illyrium and uh, bucks as you can so that you can buy a, a flashbang grenade or something um, and it's kind of that bit's really boring like it's not very interesting at all like you're trying to keep the city under control there are nine districts and you uh, you can deploy field teams um, to each one and kind of they could specialize in science or engineering but it's all just a kind of cookie clicker way of gathering resources mm. and keep and keeping the kind of overall anarchy level down um, and like not much of it actually feeds back into the tactical battles so i feel like the loop is kind of weak in this game and also ultimately it's just it's just a lot of admin it's just a, like it's a lot of paperwork almost between missions mm. um having said that i think that, like the world building is really good surprisingly uh, the cutscenes are basically just still 2d cartoon cutouts um with, and lots of voice acting but i think that the xcom universe is kind of really cool actually um hmm. and this idea of a, a city that's sort of on just about ready to boil over and uh like that there'll be like a, a faction that's a bunch of hybrids who uh, long for the days of battle in the advent war um and they've kind of been struck down by a mysterious disease but the city isn't interested in helping them because they're a kind of underclass and so they've risen up and you know they have these nefarious plans it's just it's that's good motivation that all makes sense and it's actually nicely voiced all the all your heroes uh, each one is an individual character i really like the heroes that their characters are great mm. uh, some of them have actually fought in the Admiral war so there's a kind of strange allegiance question around some of them especially verge who's your uh psyker um psyker that's a 40k thing um <laughs> uh, brain man who <laughs> make people do bad things <laughs> um I, I would ask um could you help, let me know what does the snake do <laughs> um so i've only used the snake once uh, i've mostly <laughs> had the snake doing research <laughs> and also um doing spec ops which are basically kind of uh, again resource resource gathering Snack ops. Uh, snack ops. Um, there's one which is, I think it's called legwork, and it's about just going around the community and sort of forming bonds. So I've sent, sent this terrifying snake guy in a suit off uh, into the slums to <laughs> to bother people and then uh, get intel back to me. It's like, um, <laughs> like knocking on doors to the Tory party. <laughs> um, so the snake dude, he's um, again, he can pull people close to him with his tongue and stuff, and, and he can um, restrict mm. people and basically take them out of the battle for a bit. Uh, so it's all stuff that you've seen in XCOM 2, basically, but suddenly like, now he's on your side. So uh, <laughs> that's good. I like the Muton. Um, the Muton hits people and then gets angry. Um, and then the more angry he gets, the harder he hits. But if you get too angry, then berserk. <laughs> and then he can just like, run around and start hitting your guys as well. Um, does it explain at all why sectoids wear trousers now? 
it's so weird. So it's, it's not just that they wear trousers, but they also speak perfect English, and <laughs> it's just <laughs> so like Verge is. Um, he's 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 my favorite one. Uh, he's uh, he's he's just a sectoid, and we're used to sectoids just basically making noises like this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, yeah, and that's pretty much what they do in XCOM. And they're naked. And they're naked, yeah, they're just butt <laughs> naked. But now he's he's wearing a kind of like tactical armor. He's standing up straight with his arms behind his back like a Star Trek officer, um, and he's you know he's just he's, he's talking like a secret agent who's perhaps <laughs> once part of alien special forces in the Advent War. Uh, he's he's brilliant. It, yeah, it's very strange. It's, and like <laughs> even the snakes. Do you remember went... the war? No, 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 no. Like <laughs> you went to war and you were naked and just jibbing at people. Even the snakes wear clothes. They, but they don't wear like <laughs> special snake clothes or anything. They just they just wear suits <laughs> that humans wear, but they're a snake. <laughs> it's really so strange. It's the implication that when these various peoples were working for the evil Advent alien invading force, is the implication that they were forbidden from wearing trousers by virtue of whatever kind of thrall they were put under, or have they adopted trousers now as a symbol of their freedom? I would say maybe this is... <laughs> just uh, they've adopted human clothes as a way of fitting in with the humans. Perhaps that's a very <laughs> generous interpretation. But you're like a nine-foot snake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no escaping that. Uh, there is no escaping that. Yeah, uh, that, no, it's it's odd. <laughs> no, maybe this is the most important series of questions to be asking. But it just like because don't you have like I've only seen the trailer, but isn't there like a like a sectoid who operates like a back of the van kind of dodgy? Only fools and horses type trading scenario. Yes, there like, is. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did that come to be? <laughs> yeah, they they turn up every few turns, and they're kind of like limited market, and you use Intel to buy special gadget. You, you, you use Intel to buy laser sights from the sectoid running this black market van. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's XCOM law now. That's where it's at, um, which I'm quite happy with. I was very entertained by it. Uh, mm. Even though it's evidently silly, but like, it's 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 nice that they've actually kind of not just stayed with the same world domination scenario again, and they're kind of trying to push it or forwards a little bit. I don't know why they're saying yeah. snakes wearing suits. Like, it's weird you're in, you're in these battles and there are civilians everywhere, and you can rescue them for extra intel. And if you don't rescue them, um, unrest and anarchy can rise if they die. Um, but they're, they're most of them are just like mutons in shirts. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, snakes just wearing kind of like W. H. Smith's uniforms, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, you go up to them and then they sort of slither off to safety, and it's yeah, it's quite eerie. Really. Does oh. does the the wider XCOM law uh, suggest where the snake people came from? Are they actually aliens or are they modified snakes? I think those ones are aliens. They happen to look like snakes. It is very convenient. Very well, convenient. I'm not sure who it's convenient for. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I guess it is convenient for us because it's like the opposite of a completely unfathomable cosmic terror. It's like, that's a snake. <laughs> yeah. you, know what I mean? you know what I mean? Are they the ones that used to dress as humans in the first game? Yeah, I can't. Yeah, because there are the kind of weird yeah, slithery G-men. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're um, secretly snakes. Right. Yeah, are they? I can't remember. I can't, I can't remember gone. quite. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the overall idea is that um, this greater force has subjugated a load of alien races and then used them to invade Earth. Uh, but yeah, indeed, they are just snakes. 
Yeah, I mean it's straight. Up. I think it's it is it, the, the yeah the the kind of tonal leap from because a lot of the aliens are like pretty, yeah, as you say, both the sector and the snake. Like they're kind of there's an in, implication of intelligence, but they're quite kind of bestial creatures, right? Yeah, and it is kind of interesting where they've subsequently kind of incorporated them into society because like don't they eat the chrysalids now? Yeah, so I saw. So clearly, um... the chrysalids weren't deemed they they don't get trousers. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't deserve a, a life in the new world. Uh, yeah, there's loads of fun bits of flavor text, and one of them implies that um, chrysalids are like lobsters now. They just sort of bake them in their shells and eat them <laughs> in 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 the city, which is which is great. Um, that's not to say that chrysalids don't turn up in the in the game, um, and they're still fuckers, <laughs> like lobsters. Um... <laughs> The, yeah, I don't know why I said that. I've just slandered lobsters for no reason whatsoever. Ah, they can take it. Um, yeah, well, how, what's the, how um, extensive is it as a thing? Because I appreciate it because it's, it's currently $10 and it would be 20 I think, normally, which is still seems like great value. Yeah, it's, uh, that price is nuts. I don't, I don't understand the strategy behind that. Um, I'd be fascinated to know. Uh, but yeah, it's, so there are three factions uh, and you take them on one by one. And each one's probably like a dozen or a dozen missions maybe mm. more, maybe less. And um, obviously an investigation bits in between a backup base. Um, and then there's uh, a threat behind that, which also takes some extra taking care of. So it's, I would say it's, it's really significant. Like it's um, it's not gonna be like an XCOM 2 level campaign, uh, but it's a proper like 30 hours, I'd say, mm. uh, of stuff. Um, I think they've stripped out a lot of things that XCOM fans will miss. So there's no bit of base building. Um, you can level your arm up, but there's no kind of visual changes. Uh, weapons aren't really a, th- a thing at all. There are obviously different types of weapon, but you can't really upgrade your weapons or mm. get that satisfying thing where you discover a new piece of alien technology and then incorporate it into your arsenal. Um, so none of that's there. It's, it's a much more kind of, it's trying to be much more focused combat oriented thing. Um, but for me, they've just put too much of the meta game in sort of the strategy layer into it. Um, and I could see a version of the game that is actually just far more devoted to those heroes where those heroes have their special abilities properly unlocked from the very start um and the game might be shorter as a result but i think it would get to the fun much faster uh, and then also ditch a load of the strategy stuff and uh, the trouble is i think like many strategy games and uh i think they're sort of hemmed in by their fans mm. uh, and so there are many different flavors of fandom but i think there's a certain type of x1 fan where if they changed it too much people would be angry and say this isn't XCOM anymore um, but I, I'd quite like them to sort of just try something completely different it's clear this is a spin-off thing and not like the next phase of XCOM uh, you could see from the pricing and the way it's kind of labeled mm. and stuff like that um, so it would have been a kind of good opportunity to really really ask serious questions about is this system fun is it f- right. is managing Intel and Bucks and Illyrium any fun really um, does it feel satisfying just to have to kind of click around and so you can buy more things? Uh, why not find the things in, in missions uh, instead? Like, uh, the, I think there, there's an opportunity there to really kind of interrogate the original design of XCOM and, and do mm. something more more different and really go down that route of if you're going to have these pre-made heroes, really make them feel special and different. Um, I, I, I really like the heroes, but it's, it's just like... It's very hard to experiment with them because of the way XCOM is structured. So each, given that each kind of battle is only like three or four rooms, it's very hard to get to grips with uh, a cast of 11 characters. And you're not mm. going to be sw- swapping them in and out because you're going to be learning them over the course of the game. 
Um, so I think it's kind of, it's, 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 there's something good in there, but it's kind of masked it. The design masks it and makes it hard to get at, uh, which is unfortunate um, because it, it's a really cool idea. Mm, yeah. I, well, I think, um, I think our other Tom may have some feelings about how to solve some of those problems. Yeah, I um, really can't wait to see yeah, what Tom says about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially, like to me, um, Tactical Breach Wizards and uh, XCOM Chimera Squad are, are different worlds. They're, they're just like different games completely in terms of what they want to achieve and the, the kind of experience they want to achieve. Like, I think Tom's game is very high information and uh, XCOM Chimera Squad is, it's like the lack of insight into a battlefield and the lack of kind of, you know, intel you have on mm. what's in what's what you're actually going into is cool thematically but i think a fault <laughs> and so right. i really really miss from xcom 2 um and also you still have that random challenge element uh, it's less of a kind of puzzle game really and more of a just kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best <laughs> kind of mm -hmm. game uh which is not a strategic it's not a tactical experience that that's just that's just luck um yeah yeah but i'll call it for Tom to play it and give us his feedback yeah, it's out. it'll be out by the time people listen to this, I think. I think it's out at midnight tonight at the time of recording. So, yeah. So, yes. What have you been playing, Marsh? I've been playing... Um, I've been playing an awful lot of Hunt Showdown, obviously. Yeah. Which is Let's great. Get into that. Yeah, they released a big patch. Delicious. And big new oh, patch. Oh, yeah, I haven't played this patch. Quite a lot of things about the... Uh, strength and effective range of different guns which is apparently the kind of thing that i really care about now yeah um, but i won't talk about that because i know i know that some of our listeners have heard too much of the swamp tale mm. but i will tell you instead about station flow uh which is uh, a simulation game where you build a subway station but not um as with other transport simulation games, with any particular interest in the trains themselves, but mm. only in the ways that commuters get from them and to the exits to the mm. overground. Um, and this is this is this is a at the risk of sounding like fucking Mark from Peep Show. Um, <laughs> this is a really interesting subject, uh, as it's as it's the sort of it's just this intersection of psychology and architecture and complex particulate flow systems that produces all these kind of uh, interesting problems but also very counterintuitive solutions a lot of the time and there are a lot of there are a lot if you if you, if you read about this kind of stuff there's lots of really weird things about how people move en masse through through spaces that you wouldn't necessarily think about um, you might actually for example you might remember you might remember there's a bit of an uproar i can't remember how many, how many years ago this was now when transport for london uh sort of instituted this test on holborn station um uh do you, do you remember this controversy at all I don't know oh well I, in, well in case there are listeners who are not aware of the particular escalator etiquette in the uk you stand on the fucking right hand side <laughs> and you walk on the fucking left hand side and if you if you dare stand on the left hand side you're in you're in for trouble because people people are going to look at you sideways yeah. oh they're gonna call tut, you a dickhead they're gonna <laughs> tut at you there's gonna be there's gonna be stern glances maybe, maybe somebody will shake their head yeah oh, it's, yeah it's gonna be you're in for a bad time but um 
Uh, it turns out uh, people who feel exactly like that are completely wrong. <laughs> um, uh, because, I mean, so, I mean, there, there, it seems like it's a sensible thing, right? People who want to walk up the escalator, who are going somewhere quickly, stand on the left. And people who are not in a hurry stand uh, on the right. Sorry, the people who walk, people who are in a hurry walk up the escalator on the left, and people who aren't stand on the right, and everybody gets to where they want to go at the pace that they want. But actually, apparently, if everyone stands, then the escalators can co accommodate uh, a ridiculous 30% more people. Huh. Wow. Uh, and uh, it's vastly more efficient, obviously, to do that. But this only works for escalators of a certain height. <laughs> what? So specifically only works for escalators which are over 18.5 meters. And the reason being is that uh, passengers who want to walk uh, get to the bottom of a long escalator on the left-hand side, then realize it's a really long escalator, decide they don't want to walk <laughs> and then they have to laboriously merge with the right-hand right. side standing lane. And this causes a bottleneck. But if everybody gets in the escalator immediately and decides to stand, then this just doesn't happen. And it's such, it's a really massive, massive increase in, in, in uh, how people move through the space efficiently. But it's, it's incredibly huh. hard to get people to change their behavior because, um, because I mean, well, I mean, the, I mean, one of the problems is that this is an aggregate measure of efficiency. And it doesn't apply on an individual basis. Like if I have a connection in five minutes for the Bakerloo line to get my overground train at Paddington, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fucking stand on the right hand side, and I'm gonna be very annoyed with people who do stand on the left hand side. And everybody's making these kinds of individualistic decisions when they have mm. somewhere that they need to get to. And so even though on the whole it's more efficient individually, it probably will annoy a lot of people. And so you just can't tell people to do this, really. <laughs> right so but you so is the point of the 18 and a half meters that that is the threshold where most people go actually fuck it yes that, that is the fuck it threshold <laughs> that's amazing the fact that this is so interesting is the most fucking crushing proof that i'm approaching my mid-30s imagine <laughs> <laughs> oh i know oh. Man, i know i got called out on twitter the other day for being like mark from peep show so i mean uh, well, you, you have some way to go before you reach one of those <laughs> levels of shame. But anyway, so the stations provide all these kinds of interesting mm. scenarios, right? That tests these engineering problems, intersect with psychology, and Station Flow is sort of designed to get at some of this. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's this kind of schematic-y looking view, um, and and uh, it's subdivided into. Um, different depths that you can switch between and train lines and entrances and exits will be distributed among them and then you have this sort of simplified CAD tool basically that you can use to um, connect basically everything up you know uh, so you, you literally just draw a floor and then you rotate it and then you clip it onto something and you move it over here and you can change the width and the, all these things. And then you have to exhaustively signpost all the routes and decide where you're going to have staircases and um, such things. And it, mm. it, does, uh, it does get at some of the things that are interesting about um, station design in that, you know, direct routes are not always the best or the most efficient because... Uh, by having a really direct route, you may have an end up with an intersection between two different kinds of contraflows, and it will cause collision, and then there'll be bottlenecks and and such. And you know, passengers may not always know where they need to go, so you need to ensure that they have information available to them 
almost as soon as they get into the into the station complex and they may need like coffee or the toilet and so you need to make these things accessible as well and finding places for these within your increasingly complicated network is is kind of fun um and there is obviously a, a sort of game built to totter on top of this simulation which sort of restricts the budget that you have available um and there's a time factor because everything is sort of moving like clockwork as you're putting stuff down and it punishes you if you get angry customers and and the, and you know you can you can you can plan things when it's paused but then in order to build things this needs to you need to press play and have the station operate um <laughs> so there's a sort of this level of kind of artificiality which creates like a like a, a game system on top of it and um uh i find all that stuff really annoying <laughs> um <laughs> Because the stuff that's interesting about the problem of building a station just isn't isn't that stuff. Uh, and like, you know, every day, the day ends and everything suddenly stops and you can't place anything else. Uh, and if you're about to put something down, then you suddenly can't. And then you need to click through this bunch of screens of assessments and rewards. And it just feels like uh, it just feels not in sync with really the exciting thing about it. And uh, I think I have this problem with sim games in 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 general, which is that I don't I don't f feel like they they ever find the right point of compromise for me, which is you know expressing what's interesting about the thing they're simulating. Mm. They either go two ways, one of which is like super fastidious reproductions of reality, whereby you need to be an already need to be an expert and knowledgeable enough in the real thing in order to be able to operate the virtual thing, and I. I don't I don't care at all <laughs> about that. Um what I want is like this ludic shortcut to understanding what is interesting about the problem of doing a thing or what is exceptional about the experience of, you know, experiencing mm. the thing but without actually doing it. And then there are games on the other end of the spectrum like Mini Metro which have a sim underpinning them. But ultimately, the game's challenge is just orthogonal to that. Like, there's you yeah. know, frantic time limits and bonuses and high scores. And I also don't really give a fuck about that. You know, I mean, mm. <laughs> I just want, I just want to make my stations. Basically, you're you have identified your own fuck it threshold here. I think, <laughs> <laughs> like awkwardly halfway up the yeah, up the escalator. I think what's interesting about this as well is that, like, just off the top of my head, it was interesting saying that, like you having to account for customer flow while also trying to build things because that is directly uh, anti to the reality of what refurbishing a tube station looks like, where it's either closed completely or partially closed with different routes set up for people to take. And it, I don't know, I don't know if it would suit this kind of game at all, but it feels like there's almost something there, right? In terms of how do you account for construction work taking place alongside the flow you've got to maintain otherwise? But I don't know how you would necessarily account for that if you're only operating one station. Yeah, but it's, it's sort of interesting. Yeah. It would be, yeah, I would play this as a like an MMO where if you close your station for refurbishments, you make it harder for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but the person yeah, playing really the good. bus replacement sim is having a great time or something. Like, there's <laughs> <laughs> something in there actually. Yeah, like like being able to like having to coordinate to pass the buck of an angry customers because someone has to do some necessary work down the line. Um, <laughs> but yeah like uh, it, yeah it strikes me i know exactly what you mean trying to locate this yeah trying to get to the the actual meat of the interesting problem rather than the uninteresting problem which is hmm. how do i 
spend the arbitrary amount of money I've got or do this within the arbitrary amount of time I've got. Yeah, like I was, I was thinking about this the other day in a completely different context because um, somebody was, uh, uh, I, I can't remember who, who mentioned it, but um, uh, you, as, you, as you know, I'm a big fan of the Master and Commander naval novel series. Mm. Um, and yet having consumed all of them, I still couldn't tell you the name of a single sale. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've remained just so perfectly ignorant <laughs> of the games, uh, of the game, of, of the subject matter of that, those books. And yet I have kind of imbibed a huge amount of the excitement of and, and mm. the, the significance of those naval scenarios, even though I don't really understand the detail of them. And I feel like if a book can do that, then games should surely be able to do that. And like, right. what I want, and so, so taking naval stuff particularly, like again, it has this this problem. I think Sea of Thieves is probably closest to my sweet spot than nearly any other game because they do tend to be either really arcadey, doesn't really matter which way the wind's blowing, just you know, go out and mm. you can turn around like you're in a Dodgem's car, kind of Assassin's Creed style. Uh, or um or you know it's it's just so kind of pedantically detailed that you you need to understand fully how these incredibly complex machines operate and what i really want is just like something which is at the simulation level fastidiously accurately simulated but has like this generalized tactical control so that i'm not really playing as captain aubrey I'm playing as his sort of instinct, his strategic yeah. instinct and tactical instinct. And I will say to, you know, I, I want to, I, I want the game to surface to me what, what I can do strategically and tactically that would give me advantage of what things I could do, which would be a mistake and then have the rest of the simulation sort of take over that stuff, but still be accurate to the, the reality. Cause those things are really important. And that's what makes naval battles really dramatic is that the, this, this you know the the sails the the quality of your crew the 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 winds the way the the waves are you know all these things really matter mm. i wonder if i wonder if this is something where as ai does get more as game ai does get more sophisticated you get closer to the fantasy of that because it's sort of i guess the weaknesses because what you want to what you want effectively is to be able to make the decisions but not be bound to your own ability to completely execute them like or or, right. to, or for your you know your mind's eye plan to be scuppered but not intended by your ability to hoist perfectly i'm not a sailor either it might be obvious um <laughs> but like um and the weakness there is obviously you, you know the assassin's creed thing simulates some of this in terms of being able to say to your crew you make a decision with your gamepad and the character in the game shouts the appropriate order to the crew who then does it perfectly and so it's doing something to try and make it feel like something more si si simulation e or something more significant is going on, but it's it's not really. It's a it's a what you want is the crew to be simulated necessarily to a degree of mm. um, sophistication that uh, they will attempt they will attempt to execute their best version of what you're asking for, and at that point there's I don't know, there's something fascinating there about the idea of like. They will try and do what you say because you're the captain. But if your order isn't quite right, maybe they get confused, or maybe it doesn't go. You know, you know the mm -hmm. sort of, you know, maybe things aren't possible, and that causes panic, and and therefore the the judgment would be about locate. You know, giving the right kinds of orders at the right time, which is kind of what these fantasies are, are really about. 
Um, but we don't really have the AI for that because if you, well, not in the games that I'm thinking of, because if you, if it gets everything right all the time, then that challenge doesn't exist. And if it gets things wrong randomly, that's just frustrating. So you yeah. kind of, you need it to stem, like it still needs to stem from the way you've presented your orders, really. Basically what I'm arguing for is a kind of AI supported voice controlled master and commander game, because that at that point, at that point, Marj, you cross through the dazzling bright white mark from Peep Show Event Horizon onto the <laughs> other side, <laughs> like full on through to the other side. Yeah. What a beautiful land that would be. Yeah. I think, I think, I think, um, just to go back to station flow, I think, um, I mean, in its, in its, uh, favor, it does allow you to turn off quite a lot of the sort of game ludic stuff. Um, but it also kind of plateaus in complexity quite quickly. So I think one of the main simplifications it makes, um, is that you're building in a void rather than in soil. <laughs> mm. Um, so there's no, you're not digging through anything. And you can just place things and you can delete things and you know deleting a tunnel in reality quite a big task <laughs> in in this very quick instantaneous um and it's it's not that i particularly want the challenge of like digging down you know squirming past roman ruins or dealing with underground streams and things like that it's just that i think by contrast <laughs> being able just to bung some toilets next to your deepest subway line just feels just feels really weird to me because like how that poo gonna be getting out of there Is it, <laughs> what, where are the pipes that carry the wastewater did you you know are they along the electricity lines how did that work i don't, <laughs> I don't know go? why that feels really significant to me it, you want to know where the poo go it's a natural yeah. human thing <laughs> where it go where it go is that like a toddler looking over a toilet Flushing mournfully. <laughs> Where'd it go? It gone. It That's gone. all I know. <laughs> but there, I mean, it does do cool things to mimic passenger needs. Like, you know, the tourists are a particular kind of passenger that needs information. And, um, you know, there are, there are other kinds of needs, <clears throat> including poo needs. But um, <laughs> crucially, like, there aren't any ticket barriers in the game. Like, you have... What? You have... Um, passengers who need to buy tickets but there's no um authentication layer <laughs> which is like i just again i just i hear myself saying these things it sounds like <laughs> i'm the most boring fucking human being but like how you authenticate travel is the biggest bottleneck of all surely it's how you design a, spaces yeah. so that amenities and information are available both to people who have a ticket and those who don't i mean that's really important I mean, you look at the the, the newly redesigned, and uh, not that newly redesigned London Bridge, uh, which has which is just this impossible cavernous hall, which is somehow still open to the elements, and it's subdivided into this ticketed and unticketed space in a way which is just completely unfathomable to the human mind, as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, and it's also an example where I think I mean I think it's a, an example of incredibly careful but counterintuitive design because again at london bridge you have signage which will often point you in the compass point wrong way from where you want to go um and there are mm. you know for a fact there are other ways to get there but you follow the signage and it takes you around this kind of circuitous route and i assume that's because actually it's more efficient to get you to your destination this way this way than it is by sending you through 
more crowded concourses. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah. I mean, station flu- flow does at least do that sort of thing. I think that that is that's pretty interesting. It's a little bit fussy with some of the other stuff, like you know, if you put some stairs down, of course you're going to want to put a down and an up escalator next to them, um, and you have to do all those things separately whilst switching depth levels, and that just f- feels kind of pointless. But um, yeah, it is it is quite nice as a sort of Zen experience of of fabricating layouts for for people flow, but I don't think it quite gets to the point where it expresses what is the the powerful, fascinating challenge of building train stations. Uh, uh, that's a great sentence. <laughs> I loved it. Have you been playing anything, Chris? Uh, yeah, I played a few things. I don't want to. I won't bang on about them too much because they're all things I talked about before or have been talked about quite a bit. Um, but I can rattle off um, games I have found pleasant in, in this uh, strange time. And in addition to the things that I've been playing plenty of generally. Um, so uh, we've talked about it tons, but I have. Start, I just started playing uh, on based on Tom Francis talking about it two pods ago. Uh, it turns out he was completely right. Hitman is a great stuck at home game for some reason, because you visit these well the reason I'll, I'll tell you why i don't know why i said that is um because it's because it's so fundamentally about this sort of uh globetrotting experience of just taking really really beautiful locations i hadn't played hitman 2 at all and now it's obviously and it was on sale for an absurd amount i think the entire you know pack and all the dlc and things was 15 quid a couple of weekends ago and um i i already, already played a, a bunch of that game but it's i think it's 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 quietly become this really impressive kind of um package of 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 different kinds of experiences and very repeatable experiences and i think the way we've discussed it over the years where it's sort of uh you know every every episode as they come has been sort of um meticulously assessed actually almost uh distracts from the fact that as a whole big bundle of entertainment now it's actually really really impressive it's particularly because it allows you to go through it fairly quickly and, and enjoy the the locations and the spectacle while also appreciating the amount of stuff you're leaving on the table as you move on to the next location. Um, it's genuinely great. I probably don't need to, to reiterate that many more times, but it's just a good holiday game about being a bald murder man. Um, and I appreciate we've said this many times before, but the, the way NPCs uh, reassure you that you're wearing the right uniform by loudly greeting you based on the job you do, it never, ever, ever gets old, apparently. For some reason, like the amount of different, I, I am deeply amused by the the amount of voice actors they've had to convince, well, you know, pay to say things like, "You're definitely a chef, looking pretty chefy, Sheffington," uh, <laughs> as you walk past in every location imaginable. And the, we had the, uh, yeah, we had a good question last week about what uh, what people would say if uh, the hitman turned up wearing your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> game developer you haven't been outside in a while um (laughs) yeah um but anyways the other thing i've been playing tons of um is magic the gathering arena it's got back into magic the gathering in a massive way and um it's like i feel like (laughs) to the people who listen to this podcast it's probably unnecessary for me to say that magic the gathering is really good um and i think i've said before that arena is is the best it's been digitally um, but I've been really enjoying it, and and I think it's been tickling a particular itch for just getting to enjoy that um, massive 
pile of mechanics and interesting creative things you can do with them. And it is a steep learning curve compared to other card games. But I think I am in, I'm enjoying being back in an ecosystem where it's not necessarily hugely refined to be playable quickly or, or to or to explain itself quickly. And it's not really necessarily rush about rushing you to a fair or balanced competitive thing. It's just mechanics wang. Like I wish we had a kind of word for that, but it's the same thing. You know, it's the thing card games are so good at, which is putting you in a scenario where you, you know, you're playing a lot of ranked and you legitimately don't know what you're going to see someone else do with the cards available. And you set just came out and has all these new mechanics, but there's also just so much in the game anyway, that after 27 years that, um, and obviously cards get retired and sets get rotated, but the there is something really I find exciting, even even and even and especially when you just get dominated by something you've never seen before to go on the the sort of the world tour of just crazy things people have built with this particular set of of systems. I think if you're desperately attached to having always completely balanced games and having always having an even chance of winning, that's not a fun experience. But I've been really enjoying it as a kind of uh, you know yeah just game mechanics tourism safari um and then the other side of it is i don't know it's just such a great repository of bananas high fantasy art uh, you know i basically you know ended up downloading it again because pal of friend of podcast uh paul's got kind of in, and his partner leisha have done a ton of magic cards and uh actually leisha's first cards were in the new set and, and paul's done a, a couple of sets before this as well and so that sort of put it back in my brain and it's it's just there's just so much cool stuff in there. If you like massive fantasy objects jutting out of misty horizons, well, oh boy. stern wizards look at you. But with a bit of... Then then I've got the... Richard Garfield's made the thing 27 years ago for you. Um, I've also <laughs> found an interesting phenomenon, which is I've been playing a lot of ranked, and I'm really bad at Magic the Gathering. Like, this has been the first time I've really seriously embarked on making a deck myself and actually trying to make it work myself and... And it doesn't really. Uh, when it works, it just krakens just don't stop coming out, and they just keep coming out uh, until one of us wins. Um, even when they, even when the engine's up and running, and it's just fucking krakens for days, um, I I still lose. But the um, but I've been sort of grinding away at ranked, and what I found which is really interesting to me is as I have climbed out of bronze. Uh, into silver and now midway up the silver ranks i'm winning a lot more because at the lower ranks everyone's decks is sometimes really really hard decks to beat and sometimes it's it's you know more ordinary stuff um but people play the games all the way through to the end and i don't know why i win when i win and i don't know if they know when they win why they win what i found as i've climbed up a, a rank is people give up and I think what is happening is they assume I know what's happening. <laughs> and so I will do like something and someone who I assume is winning will just explode all of a sudden and quit the game and I'll get rank points for this and then I'll go up a bit further. And I think I am being accidentally like ski lifted up the middle of the slight the, the tryhard curve in the middle of like, <laughs> ranked play to a point where people are actively like... They think I. They think I've built some horrendous combo, and maybe I have by accident. It wasn't my intent, and therefore they're like, "Oh fuck this! This person's obviously holding some card that beats me instantly. I'm not even going to fucking try." Flip the table, gone. 
and I'm uh, now that I'm winning games on this basis, it's both good and bad because previously I was playing like I'm gonna have a few games before bed and I'll stop when I win. And now I can't really stop when I win because I've played two hands of cards and all I did was play three lands. And this other person has presumably done some kind of crazy, you know, poker card table. 18 steps ahead like mathematics that has determined that I'm definitely doing this 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 and this that I'm definitely not and therefore he's they've already lost and so the games have become less satisfying as a result but I'm winning more uh which I do like <laughs> <laughs> uh and actually that reminds me the other article I wanted to uh recommend people read because it's good um is it's on it's from Wired and it's titled the stockbrokers of magic the gathering uh, by Cecilia D'Anastasio, and it's really good. It's a little sort of exploration of the financial side of Magic the Gathering as it kind of manifests online and the way it's changed over the years, um, and sort of detailing how the changes in technology generally in terms of how information technology have affected um, how Magic card, how valuation of Magic cards functions um, from the days of like fan magazines and calling shop owners to instant price updates and how it operates as this sort of um both model for actual um uh, economies uh, actual you know a kind of stock market unto itself um while also literally being that because of the sums of money involved in the way that it's intersected with things like the rise of uh, cryptocurrencies and uh you know how suddenly investing in magic and and and, and storing your money as magic cards has become a, a legitimate way for um, uh, Bitcoin men, who I assume are all called Zane, to um, uh, to you know hoard their money up against uh, fluctuations in the value of the Bitcoin and stuff, which is genuinely fascinating. Like, and the way that that sort of money moving uh, is directly influenced by health of the game meta game decisions that Wizards of the Coast might make uh genuinely really interesting yeah. you know i was aware this stuff happened but i wasn't aware of the 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 degree to which it was a, a genuine economy in its own right um and that and, sounds, and, that sounds yeah. insane to try and uh <laughs> store any money in a in in something which would just be affected by a balance change well and so this is what's really interesting is um about because magic is so long running that there are so many cards that have been retired that they become a sort of stable thing and it's um, and, you know, the, the practice of making money from magic is almost entirely speculation, but there is insider trading. They sometimes leaked information about future card sets and what may or may not happen to the metagame as a result. Some of it is like kind of quote unquote healthy speculation based on people's reasonable guesses about where the metagame is going to go and they get rewarded financially for that. And sometimes it's um, actual, you know, leaks and insider trading and things. It's genuinely interesting. Uh, but what's kind of wild and funny and scary and sad is <clears throat> this is probably as safe as any a place to put your money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the odds of Wizards of the Coast resurrecting a card from some ancient ban list in another form or literally making it legal again uh, would have a devastating effect on parts of the Magic the Gathering economy. But oil was priced negatively this week. <laughs> so <laughs> what you gonna do? Like it turns yeah. out, it turns out... Um, nothing has any meaning or value and um wizard pictures cards with pictures of wizards on them is is as good a metaphor for anything we buy ourselves anything else and actually that it makes a very fun game but maybe shouldn't be the the 
basic principle on which uh, human enterprise is conducted. Well, yeah. <laughs> the market, I meant, not, not, not Magic the Gathering, which I think would make a fine <laughs> analogy um, uh, for, for how we go about our lives. Are you, um, uh, well, two things. Firstly, uh, did you know that Mars bars are a more stable currency than gold? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, apparently they've maintained their value. Uh, m much more stably than nearly any other commodity. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I remember this from uh, Tim Harford's book. Uh, I forget which one it was, but he's an economist who's also hmm. really into games and role-playing games, so he's very cool. Um, but the other thing I want to ask you is, uh, are you poised to get back into Artifact? Uh, I will totally. Like I've been watching, they've been doing these blog posts about the way they're changing the game and the mechanics and things, and I will definitely play it when it comes back. I... I'm very curious what they do with it. Like, I, I wonder, I wonder to what extent solving its problems means, uh, you know, mechanical changes or overhauls to the type of game that it is. Um, maybe that is maybe that is the answer. Maybe there is an audience waiting for a super complicated card game. But, um. I don't know, like I, I and you know, it'd be really interesting to see what they do with. I think there are some big unanswered, I think, questions about how progression works and how you earn cards and things, which were the real problems with Artifact originally. That effectively, it was the Magic the Gathering model, and and that was deemed not palatable to the audience, which is interesting because uh, MTG Arena is apparently doing very well, even though you can't buy or sell cards, which um, would you'd assume act as a uh, pressure release valve to give people a way into the game if they if they didn't get lucky with card pack opening and stuff like that although actually in it to its credit arena has uh it's, it, in my experience of it and i spent money on, on card packs and things so i'm sort of obviously have been ushered onto the um the gravy train the, the the train where they keep you happy because they know you're willing to spend money um but it does have a fairly generous and very transparent crafting system, which is something to be it's to be commended for, I think, because I think too often in these types of games, the way in which you go about getting the rare card you want is so opaque or hidden behind a grind or that it kind of it puts you off until you agree to go buy card packs instead, basically. Whereas in this it's very clear how many rare things you can craft at any time and it's you've got complete choice over which what you choose to make and stuff, and that's genuinely great. I'm I'm in, tentatively interested in it because although I suspect it's going to be too complicated for me, it will have a single player apparently. So, um, mm. oh yeah, I will at least be able to test the waters without feeling like I'm I'm going to be obliterated by angry boys across the internet. I find that um, card games are just passive enough to kind of be easy to play online. Mm. There's there are limited emotes and limited kind of ways you can still people still troll, of course nature finds a way um but uh the actual kind of experience of playing someone online at hearthstone or magic the gathering arena has been mostly pleasant for me like i actually quite enjoy it yeah same i think magic has the weird thing of like it it struggles to get past certain things that you would quickly move through on a tabletop scenario like yeah because yeah. magic has so many moments where you can play a card or yeah. even on your opponent's turn and you know you have to get used to the idea that it kind of you know in real life it wouldn't give away your opponent would have no way of knowing um, that you are holding, let's say, an instant card that you could play yeah. during their turn, um, unless you literally went like hmm? and hold the held the card forward slightly every time you potentially had an opportunity to play it. 
but the game literally does that for you because it pauses to see if you want to do it or not. Um, and so there's some interesting sort of quirks like that, and occasionally people who are not... It's it's definitely... I found that Hearthstone is a game that I've been able to play while tabbing to something else, um, whereas with Magic, that's definitely not the case because it requires your attention really constantly. But I've found it consistently really rewarding because it's just... I don't know. that I think I've said it before, but that... Do love me a multiplayer in a fantasy universe for some reason. Just... Just like it a lot. Just want to look at a picture of a big vista with and get magic from it. Basically, I'm so I'm so, so glad they've got a, a decent digital version now because yeah. um, uh, I don't know if they licensed the previous ones. I remember reviewing one years mm. ago and giving it like fifty or something because it was just like dull and it just didn't kind of embrace the sheer breadth of mechanics and cards that actually exists in the Magic universe. Uh, so it felt very constrained. Um, perhaps as a kind of they wanted to kind of dumb it down to make it more accessible, but I don't think you should do that to magic. Like you've got to embrace the fact it's complex and it's, you know, it's the, the grandfather of this type of game uh, yeah. and it, it should just be remain authentic and that they've actually done that well, well with arena. I think uh, it looks good. It's good too. It does. Yeah. They, like they, they haven't been able to go completely over the top with like card effects as other games have, because there are so many, but yeah, yeah, it does look really good. I found a really interesting fact the other day and maybe everybody in the universe knows this, but you know why it's called magic the gathering? No. Oh. So, um, it's called Magic because that was the name that Richard Garfield came up for this wizard game he was making. Um, but The Gathering was intended to be the name of the first set. Um, because that's why it's called The Gathering, right? Like, it's the beginning, the origins or whatever. Um, and they printed it and they, they ran with it. And then they came around to making the next set, I think, or the next set of cards or next expansion. Only to realize that this is a a deck building game to a substantial degree where players are going to be taking um, cards from every set and combining them to make new decks rather than every set being a self-contained game in its own right. And they had printed the gathering on the backs of all the cards in the first set. <laughs> right. And so there was no way around it because it's, you can't reprint those card backs and you can't give the, you know, you can't uh, change the card back. Um, so it, it had to stay. Like that, and so the name of the game had to become Magic the Gathering, um, rather than just Magic. Uh, as... <laughs> Don't work in print. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, it would because you know, and it's interesting because I wonder if um, um, MTG is such a kind of like one of those acronyms that so kind of it could only really mean one thing now. And I wonder, I don't know, it would still be around if it was just M. But yeah. <laughs> A good screw up. I don't know if it was just short-sighted, like they didn't think they would do expansions, so just do it on the card back, but yeah. And that's the reason why Magic card backs are still brown. Uh, yeah, there you go. That's, who who that's makes the new um, Magic game? I think I think uh, Wizards of the Coast do it internally. Oh, right. Because the last one, yeah. I mean, the, the ones that I played, maybe the one that you reviewed was made by um, Stainless Games down in the Isle of Wight. Huh. Yeah. Who are uh, more famous for Carmageddon? <laughs> Which, uh... Wow, a strange, yeah. strange path. Yeah, yeah. I think the new one's internal. I, I think it, it it must be close to because it's so tightly integrated into, like everything to do with Magic: The Gathering now. Like the the card sets that that come out a couple of times a year come out same day in the game, the digital game, and I imagine that would be a bit of a nightmare to coordinate because they. It's quite an impressive job they do because the card sets add whole mechanics and you know so this this new card set adds the ability to have a it's all about giant monsters and 
and stuff and so you can have a character you can have a monster as a companion which basically means that it's a card that sits outside your deck that you always have access to but that places a deck building restriction on you and i was a bit worried about how this would be implemented into the digital game but it's all kind of seamlessly merged so as soon as you select that card as your companion it applies an appropriate filter to your collection so you can only build a valid deck for that for that particular new completely new mechanic and then that's an interesting that would be an interesting challenge to articulate if it was a third party because you'd have to get them to rewrite chunks of the game to account for like massive shifts in what's possible i find that very interesting i'm really surprised by the cadence of updates on magic because it's much faster than i would expect Mm. like uh, given that they introduce such major uh meta changes and then it seems like every six months or so that there's another one coming out and there's i think it's four sets a year which is completely that's wild Yeah, yeah that's wild like yeah like it's i mean obviously supports a you know talking about things that you make you know just people get to draw wizards i think a lot in Mm. order to sustain the demand for pictures of wizards which i'm very for speaking of which um i follow uh paul Paul scott canavan on twitter and um, i'm not sure if his partner's on there actually Uh, i should look that up alicia's actually yeah oh good um so yeah uh it's well worth following them for because they post their art and it's really good i love it i love a good fancy art me too me too um but yeah i don't know if i need to sell magic the gathering to, to people anymore but it has been yeah it's been my consistent thing it takes fucking ages to load that's the same thing i'll complain about <laughs> should we do some questions sure let's do that all right cool uh mark writes hello merry creek bar crew thank you very much for keeping the podcast going through the lockdown every bit of normalcy is newly precious right now and although the pod could hardly be described as normal, it is exceedingly welcome in these times. Also, uh, the Animal uh, Crossing specials have been kick-ass. In a similar vein, you mentioned Alex's book, Japan Soft, on a previous episode. I treated myself to a copy, and it was really a treat. Oh, that's nice. Pass that on to Alex. A question with obligatory preamble. The cover of perhaps the first copy of PC Gamer I ever got memorably featured Cloud Strife and his hair. I never played Final Fantasy VII, but my friend Vince did, and for him it was as formative as Deus Ex would be for me. Each game opened our eyes uh, to the seemingly limitless potential of the video game as a storytelling medium, while also setting us off on quite different paths to this multifaceted electronic hobby. My question is this, JRPGs sure are weird sometimes, but are they also good? And if they are, which ones? Thanks for your continued podcasting. All the best, Mark. I, Final Fantasy VII was really formative for me in terms mm. of just art because it put me onto Akira, it put me onto Ghost in the Shell, and a, a whole sort of urban manga aesthetic that um, I, I was delighted to discover. You live by to this day? I do, I do, yeah. <laughs> my, case, my code. Your, your huge sword and your big hair <laughs> yeah, right. My big hair it sticks <laughs> up in, every, in all weather. It's great. Um, yeah, I'd say that um, there are some good RPGs, JRPGs on the PC, but most of them tend to be confined to consoles. Um, so I would cite the Persona series as a mm. really uh, cool kind of fusion of pretty traditional JRPG, running through dungeons and getting into uh, sort of scraps, turn-based scraps, um, but also fused with a kind of high school drama uh, that mm. actually feeds back into the monster hunting uh, that's written with a lot of kind of you know there's some good characters i was about to say 
sensitivity and nuance, but that's not true at all. Um, <laughs> it's, but it's, it's still a great series. Persona 5 as well just looks fucking amazing. It's got such a cool art style. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a PlayStation thing, I think. Or a, yeah. mm-hmm. um, it might come to PC one day. We'll see. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think you can play Chrono Trigger on PC. Yeah, I was going to say Chrono Trigger. Yeah, that's a great one. That's really, really good. And uh, Final Fantasy VI is brilliant. Um, as you, you know, it has the kind of uh, melodrama of Final Fantasy VII, but with more of a sense of humour. Seven has a sense of humour, but like um, a better sense of humour, I would say. <laughs> it's funny, and, and also great characters. Um, and also, you get to suplex a train, famously, in, um, mm. in that game. Um, you can use your limit breaks on these big sprites and uh there's this one guy who's just a, a, a basically a pro wrestler <laughs> that's his sort of thing um it's not his character but that's how he fights and uh <laughs> he's got a move called suplex what it does he runs up to the enemy and it just rotates the sprite <laughs> whatever the sprite is it just rotates it 90 degrees and he disappears up off the screen and slams back down and this works for a ghost train that is half the length of the, the screen and it's uh you should turn this video down on youtube because it's extremely funny and i just i love that they just left that in it's like, yeah, it's fine. You can mm. do that. Um, five by six is good. So I think we shouldn't necessarily limit ourselves to PC in answering this because it's very, very hard with this genre in particular. Um, have you played the remake, the 7 remake? Yeah, um, I think I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. Oh, cool. uh, and I enjoy it when I can switch my critic brain off, <laughs> right. uh, which is to say it's beautiful fan service. The game looks fucking incredible. I just can't believe how good the character models look. Um, but I find the combat so messy, I've put it down to a classic mode where basically the, the characters fight by themselves and then you occasionally give them orders. Um, right. And yeah, it's just it's just fascinating to see, to see them keep in bits that are quite risky. Um, so there's um, a famous quest in War Market where uh, Don Corneoni... I think his name is. Um, you sure? No, it's definitely <laughs> wrong. Uh, Don Don Corneo. <laughs> Don Corleone. <laughs> not the no, not the actual fucking Godfather. No. Um, <laughs> it's called Don. Because I would fucking <laughs> I would play that remake. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so good. Um, Don Corneo, that's his name close and uh he's he's looking for a bride and uh he auditions brides every other evening um and so cloud has to uh dress as a woman for that bit and you have to complete a series of mini quests uh to get the best stuff and if you if you get the best sort of things to wear and perfume to wear and stuff then he chooses you and you get a special scene and that shit doesn't fly <laughs> these days. Like, uh, yeah, how it, sensitively do they handle that? Because I saw the trailer where they revealed that, and it looked like they'd taken it in quite a fun kind yes. of yes, yeah, that's what's kind of, of like direction. That's what really interests me about the um, the remake is that they have not left anything out really. Like all of the stuff in FF Seven in Midgar is in this game, uh, including this, the really silly stuff. Um, but for this, they've made it a kind of if um, it's more of like a RuPaul's Drag Race kind of vibe. Right, yeah, that's the thing I got from the trailer, which is yeah, like, uh, it's yeah. the only way you could do it. Like, I think I think they've yeah, they've they've actually treated it quite sensitively, um, and actually made it kind of like a quite empowering thing, and yeah, it, it, while still being funny as well. Uh, mm. So I, yeah, I, I'm quite impressed by it so far in terms of like how it handles stuff tonally, and also it's it's kind of a corridor game in a way, which is kind of 
disappointing for an RPG where you want to be able to roam a bit. Um, but to be honest, like the original Final Fantasy VII, the original Midgar section at the start of the game is very railroaded. Uh, so maybe for the future remakes, it might open up a bit where you get to the world map, if they even do that. Mm. Um, but to see Midgar rendered at that level of detail, and it's, it, they've made it truly monstrous, which it should be. It's a horrible two-tiered city, and it's just just pure industrial pipework and looming superstructures. Um, and going through like day, the day and night as you move through the chapters, and you, you know, at night you see all the lights, it's quite beautiful. And during the day, you see sort of daylight trying to creep in through the sides, but it's still, there are fake sun lamps uh, for the sort of underclass, uh, hmm. which you end up switching off. Uh, as part of your terrorist activities, that's the other thing. You play as a terrorist cell in in that game, and that's an interesting thing to navigate. That uh, since Final Fantasy VII originally came out, mm. uh, so they've had to have characters um, like Tifa actually question themselves what they're doing, saying like, "Are we the bad guys?" and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think they've done a good job. I think it's it's, it's really interesting that that increase in fidelity and, and the addition of voice acting and dialogue. There's so much more dialogue in it than there would be in the original game um, has put on a requirement for them to actually think sensibly about the themes of the game. Mm. And they didn't have to do that really. Like they, they could have done, they could have just like made it look beautiful, not really thought about that. But the fact that they've actually gone through that process of saying, no, we need to actually kind of reframe this and case it and sort of right, yeah. change a few pop points slightly um, to make it look as though you're freedom fighters, but you're not actually trying to hurt people um and actually it's the the shinra that are actually doing all the really bad stuff um it's good I've, I'm, I'm impressed by the tone the kind of shape of it and again yeah it looks fabulous right yeah i will play it, i think i was just trying to think if there any other jrpgs i would recommend off the top of my head but honestly like um outside of the big ones i'm not sure quite like lost odyssey back in the day I don't know if lost oh odyssey. yeah i remember that that was quite pleasant, but yeah. endless, just an endless game. That's what I, the issues. Uh, yeah, the, the, the JRPGs tend to be super, super long. I really, really enjoyed Tales of Symphonia on Game, GameCube, um, mm. which is insanely long. Um, but has is it really... the one about Chopin? Oh, no, that, um, that's, that's a different not... one. No, yeah. but that, oh, what's that one called? You're right, though, I've played that one as well. But, yeah. That one's fun just because, I mean, you're in Chopin's fucking brain. <laughs> <laughs> What a great, what a great premise! <laughs> Eternal oh, Sonata. That's, that's the, one. the one. That's the one. March of the Rescue. Yeah. But with Nvidia RTX, no one can hear you. Google <laughs> Chopin RPG. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was also muted, so. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, that's the other reason to can hear. You. Uh, yeah. Any other JRPG thoughts before we move on? Off the top of my head. Cool. Uh, this is just a fun email. Jesse writes, Dear Breach and Blowhard, Mr. Francis in particular, he's not here, I'm so down for tactical Breach Wizards, but dude, how fly is that new XCOM Chimera joint? You might have some competition for the squad-sized tactical defenestration-based game crown, but I know BT-dubs is where it's at. Seriously, looking forward to it. Stay healthy, all. Jesse. And Jesse Piers provi- provided some latitude and longitudinal coordinates for this email <laughs> that I haven't Googled, so I don't know where where they go in fact i could check but i haven't um i enjoyed i just enjoyed the roller coaster of this email that's um, a good email and i hope tom seen uh, tom francis did as well and also it's now canonically uh tb dubs 
Um, TV dubs. <laughs> rather than BT dubs, which is actually... <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I like that a lot. Um, uh, Tom, do you feel like we've sufficiently addressed how fly the new XCOM Chimera joint is? Uh, I sort of babbled about it for a bit. And it's yeah. sort of, I'd say... It's not sort of what fly. number did you say? How how fly did you judge it out of hundred? Oh, all, all of that. Everything I said amounts to seven out of ten. Guess what? Games journalist. <laughs> Perfecto. Uh, <laughs> Joshua writes, uh, dear slates and waybars. Some many 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 episodes ago, uh, you discussed the question of what to call the outline of a build item as yet unplaced. That phantom blueprint that represents where the building branch turret or other game asset will go when you click Construct. This question has lingered in my mind like a broken questline ever since. So, to cast my hat into the ring long after it has been disassembled and moved on, uh, my offering is Adumbric. Uh, it derives from Adumbrate, which means to cast a shadow of intent into the future. This verb shares a derivation with Umbra and Umbral, words to do with shadow mostly used by D&D product, products and thoroughly overshadowed, uh, by their more successful offspring, Umbrella. Thanks for indulging my nonsense. When the occlusion of Corona shifts out of primacy, I hope it leaves you all in the sun. Thanks for glistening, celestial bodies. Um, P.S. If you really want an actual question, please try to top a dumb bricks, because it is a dumb word. Joshua. Oh, they can. A dumb brick is really good, because it, uh, you know, it sounds like a brick, which yeah. is the thing you place when you're building things. Perfect. But like a dumb brick that you would soon want to be replaced with a smart brick. <laughs> yeah, it is good. Uh, do we have any suggestions? I don't know, because I think um, I think we just called these previews when we were working on something similar recently. So that's boring. <laughs> that's, that's not what you call that. Any other content it. to be derived from the word of Dumbrick? <laughs> anything. Anything at all. It's, Just a it's, it's a good word. If you were hovering the idea of a joke over the podcast, we're not sure whether to commit. <laughs> what shape would it take? Uh, the answer is none. Uh, Eskil writes, Dear cryptographers and kleptomaniacs, what are your favourite gaming stories uh, caused by an interesting win condition? For angst for Podden, Eskil, and this is a friend of Pod, Eskil Steenberg, who uh, guested many years ago now. Uh, but hi, Eskil. This is an interesting question about interesting yeah. wind conditions. It's a very open question, and it sort of makes mm. you interrogate your entire history of playing games, which is uh, quite an intimidating thing to do <laughs> on the spot. But um, I think. Uh, I mean, there's. I don't. I can't think of any particular video games that do this, but I've played a lot of tabletop games and RP and just role playing, which uh, you know mm. causes interesting win conditions. There are games which are entirely about having very strange uh, and uh, you know uh, uh, surprising win conditions that you reveal unexpectedly. Um, Cosmic Encounter is such a game where everybody plays a race. Nobody knows. Um, what other people's races are or indeed what wind conditions they have and they can be very obscure and strange uh, mm. uh yeah that is that is a lot of fun to play because part of it is the surprise of discovering that your your brilliant plan can be nullified in a with a, the single turn of a card and actually somebody else wins as a result 
Yeah, I think I've hit this a lot. I've run a lot of Werewolf in my life. And I mm. think Werewolf expansions are pretty good at adding in, in interesting win conditions that alter. The, and I think, I think the, um, the impact of a interesting win condition is actually often, I think, not felt at the end of a game because it's usually just causes the game to end, uh, based on a particular condition being met, but on the threat of it. And there's a, <clears throat> we had a, I played a lot of Werewolf and it, it began with my, my, childhood best friends stag do um where the second day in people were a bit worse for wear and i made a werewolf set out of a bit of a cereal box and played and it became this thing that everyone wanted to play and we met up every year and we played bigger and bigger games until we were playing i was running you know 40 person games of werewolf that would last about a part of an afternoon um but through all of this one friend of mine a guy called robin who was at that first stag do would always be the person who was executed on the first day by the village um, because in typical werewolf gameplay where you're trying to figure out who the werewolves are in the village you do what is known as a kind of uh a, a scouting execution <laughs> just for the sake of information because players reveal who they were when they die and that's a really hard decision to make because you have to effectively pick someone to be out of the game um and werewolf is amazing for a lot of reasons and amazing for identifying and, and games like it are amazing for a lot of reasons and amazing for identifying human traits. And one particular social trait that this identifies is if you have a shitty decision to make, it is much easier to make if you pick something that people think is funny or you pick the thing you picked last time. And both of these things are true when you end up basically ensuring that a person called Robin doesn't get to play the game for several years. Um, by him always dying first and uh, because it was an easy decision than picking someone different and uh i would tr try like palming him a, a special card to give him at least something to do in the minutes before he expired uh, and eventually i introduced a card uh called the angel um who wins the game immediately and only they win they basically add a faction that the angel belongs to in addition to the werewolves and the villagers and they win if they are executed by the village in the first day and that's the <laughs> and after that they become an ordinary person and what is really interesting about this is um the threat of it being in the room completely changes how people behave and actively forces people to assess who's saying what and who's being suspicious and who might be angling uh, for a win in a way that completely solves the problem of the of the just kill Robin uh, scenario because you don't know that he has that card you don't know if I've palmed him that card specifically or something like that but he might and so you yeah and it, that sort of play of information is really 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 cool I like any system like that where you have to account for several different possible win states uh, in addition to the ones that you know are in play uh well sort of that stuff as is uh the excellent blood on the clock tower which i think still isn't out but is essentially a werewolf successor for people who played so much werewolf they, they can see the matrix which is a decent number of people this question made me think of uh the video game solium infernum by crystal comet which came out mm. i believe in 2009 so it's an old one uh but uh, in this game, you play each player plays as one of the demons of hell, and they're seeking to gain dominance. Um, but when you create your demon, you can sort of set out your objectives and define your win condition, um, whether it's like amassing wealth or military 
dominance or allies uh, but there's one where uh, it's like if you befriend a certain person and they win the game you actually win the game <laughs> which is just wow what a fascinating kind of uh, social kind of knot mm. that puts you in um, and the fact that other players know that that objective exists so someone's really like kind of cozying you up and trying to be your friend and trying to make you powerful and giving you stuff you've got to start suspecting that and it's just creates this kind of sneakiness and this sense of uh mis- distrust that really sh- it's really thematic like it should exist between these uh demons and their you know mm. self-interest um i thought that was a very clever mechanic if cruel <laughs> yeah but i think it's yeah i think these i think social games are so rich in this sort of thing actually Probably the best location yeah. for it. Yeah, true. We've been playing um, uh, a Blades in the Dark campaign, and um, one of the the best decisions we've made, I think, in, in probably in all the role playing that I've done, is that we chose a crew whose defining characteristic, and thus the mechanism by which they accrue XP, was subtlety. Um, hmm. And hmm. Uh, in all of my role playing experience sociopathy seems to be where people tend to drift towards um and chaos and and blaze is particularly a, a game about trying to escape from incredibly and escalatingly chaotic circumstances um like it's it's sort of it's played best when you are uh you don't really have much sort of setup what happens is you're dropped in media res right in the middle of the chaos and then you have a number of flashbacks essentially to work mm. out how you have prepared previously in order to escape the situation that you now find yourself in which in- involves a lot of kind of very kind of you know rapid thinking and uh it's, in- it's incredibly fun and the idea is that things always go wrong and further wrong and more wrong and then you get out by the skin of your teeth but not having like the resort to loud violence is is, a, is such a really interesting constraint on it because it's a game in which naturally has a lot of combat in it as a lot of rpgs do because they tend to be you know swords and magic and fantasy and stabbing um and this i mean it blades in the dark you know it's sort of a little bit in the in the title but the the necessity for us to be subtle with it has tied us in in wonderful convolutions which has been really exciting what is the penalty for getting that wrong it's just that you don't earn xp as a crew basically right it's a it's i mean success i mean you still survive well i mean maybe maybe but i mean um yeah in order to get any kind of advancement going you need to be uh, expressing yourself in a subtle way it, a, lot, a lot of the ways in which your characters individually progress as well is about um expressing themselves through role play in, in the traits that they are meant to mm. have so it's not really about you know doing a good murder or whatever if you're a if you're a character with um <clears throat> social skills then you express uh you you know you, you get points for convincing somebody or being persuasive or commanding somebody if you're a bully bullyish character mm. and it's it's quite a good way of sort of directing um directing people's behavior through the kinds of not exactly success conditions but you know advancement conditions i think it's cool it's a really good role-playing system yeah i really like blades i think um i think maybe the the thing about this that i find interesting as a question actually is is i feel like with a lot of a lot of games are built around 
um, the win condition being fairly immutable. And I think any scenario that once we've described where it's possible for the win condition to change or for a wild card to be thrown into it actually is super interesting. And uh, and it, it just, you know, made me think of the fact that that is true in Magic. Um, you know, they've had 20 odd years of card development and they've needed to push every single part of that sandbox uh, all the time in order to find new territory for how you might win or lose a game of Magic, which would otherwise be about reducing a pool of 20 health to zero. And... While obviously certain times things get, you know, don't work or they need to be banned or, or whatever, there's, I think there's something to be said for the feeling I was describing earlier of genuinely not knowing how someone is going to try and achieve a win, either by the rules as understood at the start of the game or by rules that just get thrown in there when because they're possible. Like, for example, my infinite uh, Kraken situation, um, <laughs> which I, I, it was enjoyable to say, um, is a... <laughs> Uh, one thing it does, in, in addition to producing a lot of Kraken, um, it produces several Kraken through several different me mechanisms, but one of them is a big named Kraken. And what that Kraken does, in addition to being a Kraken, <laughs> is when the Kraken arrives, the Kraken uh, forces both players, myself and the opponent, to take the top four cards of their deck and put them in their graveyard. And then of those eight cards drawn in that process, um, I can pick any creature in either a pile that has an even mana cost, even numbered mana cost, and play it to my side of the board as if it were mine. Uh, and I built around this, including creating illusory duplicates of that first Kraken, and having a big mermaid who stirs the ocean with a trident, uh, forcing the Kraken to go into the void and come back out again, like a Kraken that has forgotten what it came into a room for, which causes this effect to trigger over and over and over and over again. Um, and this is often when people quit the game and mm -hmm. win, I win. Um, and what this can do is it can what's called mill your opponent. It can force them to basically just discard their entire deck. And if you try and draw a card in that situation, I win. But I've, it also does the same thing to me at the same time. And so I've got a Planeswalker in there, uh, a variant on Jace, which means that just changes the win condition. So that if I ever mill myself to death, I win. Um, <laughs> actually. And it's basically just a line that says, it's good actually if I run out of cards. Um, and I can power him up to the point where he can mill me to pieces if I want him to. Um, and that's really fun because it, it adds this element of danger where even and this is a, essentially a game mechanic I've constructed for myself using the pieces available where I'll be deep into a game and I'll have to make a choice about whether I'm going to push to use this mechanic to kill my opponent the way that that would normally work or if I can gamble on killing myself with it, but actually that's good. And that's, you know... Uh, and then if that card doesn't show up or if they have some way of getting rid of him then I'm I'm really fucked and that's a good feeling as well because it's like I understand the, the narrative arc that started with me choosing to build this deck and ended with me losing a game of Magic the Gathering which is a very f that, that is as far as I understand the arc <laughs> <laughs> and that's my story about Kraken you've said the word Kraken so many times now that I don't even know what it means anymore <laughs> <laughs> it's neither do I uh what's anything else cracking no. no okay cool that's all the questions we've got time for in that case um if you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of the podcast you could do that if you wish by emailing us uh uh at uh questions at creighton <laughs> kraken and creighton kraken.com um if you'd like to send us thoughts on twitter.com you're also allowed to do that you can do that by tweeting us at Crate and Crowbar 
my brain is running out of energy. Mm. Wait, and <laughs> it's uh, let's just get mm, yeah. Uh, YouTube got one of them. YouTube.com forward slash create and crowbar. And boy, oh boy, none of this would be possible or even imaginable without the support of our Patreon uh, supporters who support us on Patreon. <laughs> um, <laughs> fuck. That's patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar. Uh, would you believe it? A uh, Discord community where people talk about many subjects, including the price of turnips, uh, politics, and games, uh, can be found on Discord. The link for which is on our website, createandcrowbar.com. Um, I think that's it. I've been Chris Thurston. Me, I am Marsh Davis. <laughs> and I am Tom Senior. Thanks for cracking, Thanks everybody. Thanks for cracking, everybody. I was going to say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cracking, 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 cracking. Cracking. Egg, 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 eg